today is our last day worshiping in the fellowship hall, for a while at least. Who knows what we'll do? Maybe we'll do a memorial service in the fellowship hall sometimes. But for a while, today is our last day worshiping in the fellowship hall. And so I want to take a picture. (laughs) So I'm going to take one as a selfie, and then I'll take one that actually matters. (laughs) All right, let's see. Get nice and wide, everyone smile. Three, two, one. All right. It is exciting. Today is our last day worshiping here in the Fellowship Hall. Why? Because God is worthy of it being exciting. God is worthy of our worship. God is worthy of our full and complete efforts to worship him. You can uh, look at our memory verse of the week, if you remember it. It's 1 Corinthians 11.1. Uh, we'll put it up here on the screen. And if you would, wouldn't mind reading it with me, 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. We are following our Lord and Savior. And as we follow Christ, we should live in such a way that we can call on others to follow our example. For our passage today, we'll be in 1 Kings chapter 8. Now, I have a confession to make about this sermon. I wrote this sermon back in July because I thought for sure back in July that I'd be preaching this sermon in August, and I wanted to get a head start on that sermon. Well, Little did I know just how far ahead I had planned. But I do want to tell you all something. God knew. And here's the reason. Well, I know God knew for theological reasons. But here's the other reason. I know that God knew. You see, we're going to learn about the dedication of the temple. And as I looked at Solomon's dedication of the temple this week, I was struck by something. It happened at the same time as the Feast of Tabernacles. Now you might think, okay, wow, happened. Great, wonderful. What's the significance of that? Here's what's really cool. The Feast of Tabernacles was the feast that Israel had at the end of harvest in order to give thanks to God for all the things that he had done over the last year. Guess when we're going to dedicate our building? (laughs) It didn't hit me until this week. God had this planned out long before we knew it. We will be dedicating at the time that we are giving thanks for what God has done. God alone is worthy of our devotion. He's worthy of the glory. He is worthy. Let me set the stage for 1 Kings chapter 8. All the way back, all the way back, to the time when Israel, the Israelites, not even a nation at this point, were slaves in Egypt. As they were slaves in Egypt, God told Moses to go to Pharaoh and to ask Pharaoh to let the people go that they might worship me. Let the people go into the desert a while to make sacrifices and worship me. Now, 
Eventually, Pharaoh did, not without a lot of screaming and kicking along the way. But eventually, Pharaoh, in fact, drove the people of Israel out. But 1 Kings 6.1 tells us that it was 480 years from the time that Israel left Egypt until a temple had been built. 480 years time span. It's a lot more than the year and a half that we've been working on this project. (laughs) But 480 years during the wilderness wanderings, you see, for 40 years wandering in the wilderness, Israel would periodically pack up and move. Now, if you want to know what it's like to pack up and move, you can talk to Myra about moving all of this equipment. I can't imagine what it must have been like for the Israelites not having a temple but the tabernacle. During the book of Joshua and Judges, during that period of time, the Israelites still worshiped at the tabernacle. They seemed to have no interest in building a temple yet. When Saul became king, Saul was pretty self-centered, and I see no indication that Saul had any interest in building God a temple. David finally took the throne, and David seems to have been interested. In fact, more than seems to, he was interested. He asked permission to build the temple, and he went to the prophet Nathan and said, I want to build a temple for God. And Nathan said, go do it. And then the next morning, Nathan said, "Uh, sorry, I spoke out of turn. Just wait. Finally, 480 years later, Solomon took on the task of building the temple. 1 Kings chapter 8 sits right in the middle. The temple has been completed, but the Ark of the Covenant has not yet been moved into the temple. They have not dedicated the temple yet. 1 Kings chapter 8 is our framing passage for learning what Israel did in dedicating the temple. Paul House writes that chapter 8 is one of the most theologically significant texts in 1 and 2 Kings. Here, readers encounter more than the pomp, ceremony, and ritual associated with major religious building dedications. The author certainly includes these details, yet also selects the aspects of the ceremony that underscore Israel's theological heritage. Whether in describing the procession to the temple, Solomon's prayers and speeches, or the Lord's reaction to the scene, the writer interweaves into the story awe, theological history, warnings, and encouragements. In the coming week, I want us to do more than pomp and circumstance. I want it to be a wonderful dedication service. But I want us to stand in awe of the God who has provided. This is not about us. This is about God. So this week, may we stand in awe as we dedicate. May we remember that God alone is worthy of our efforts in worship, that God alone is worthy of our careful and purposeful worship, that God alone is the one who will bring glory to our sanctuary. Amen. Let's look at 1 Kings chapter 8, starting in verse 1. Then King Solomon summoned into his presence at Jerusalem the elders of Israel, all the heads of the tribes and the chiefs of the Israelite families to bring up the Ark of the Lord's Covenant from Zion, the city of David. 
all the Israelites came together to King Solomon at the time of the festival in the month of Ethanim, the seventh month. When all the elders of Israel had arrived, the priests took up the ark, and they brought up the ark of the Lord and the tent of meetings and all the sacred furnishings in it. The priests and the Levites carried them up, and King Solomon and the entire assembly of Israel that had gathered about him were before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and cattle that they could not be recorded or counted. The priests then brought the ark of the Lord's covenant to its place in the inner sanctuary of the temple, the most holy place, and put it beneath the wings of the cherubim. The cherubim spread their wings over the place of the ark and overshadowed the ark and its carrying poles. These poles were so long that their ends could not be seen or could be seen from the holy place in front of the inner sanctuary, but not from outside the holy place. And they are still there today. There was nothing in the ark except the two stone tablets that Moses had placed in at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with the Israelites after they came out of Egypt. When the priests withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord, and the priests could not perform the service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled his temple. Then Solomon said, The Lord has said that he would dwell in a dark cloud. I have indeed built a magnificent temple for you, a place for you to dwell forever. I want us to first recognize that God is worthy of human effort in worship. God is worthy of our efforts in worship. Notice that worship is both individual and corporate. Worship is an individual and a corporate undertaking. Here in 1 Kings chapter 8, the act of worship is a national act. It opens up with the temple having been constructed and Solomon summoning into his presence. And what we see is that Solomon is about to get everybody together for a great act of worship. You see, the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Covenant that symbolizes God's presence. God is omnipresent. God is everywhere. But the Ark for the people of Israel symbolized the presence of God. The Ark of the Covenant was located not at the temple yet, but at Mount Zion in the southeast portion of Jerusalem at this time what is known as of the city of David. But now with construction complete, the time has come for the ark to be moved, for the ark to be relocated to the temple. It's time for God's physical presence to symbolically be placed in the temple. It's time to give this over to God. Solomon drums up wide support. He pulls together the elders, the heads, and the chiefs. Just think of this as different ranks in the governmental structure. He pulls together the people and says, it is time for us to get to work. The date that's chosen is the Feast of Tabernacles. I told you that would have been their Thanksgiving. They're going to do this over Thanksgiving week. Again, that just... Every time I say that, it gives me like chills that God did this so long ago. But they get together. They get ready. And I want you to see there is broad, large 
participation. In verses one and two, we see this. The elders, the heads of the tribes, the chiefs, they're all doing it together. Verse two tells us all the Israelites came together. All of them are getting together. They're all participating. They're all doing it as one. This act of worship is a corporate act of worship that includes everybody. Solomon's choices here are amazing. Solomon is able to emphasize this is all about thanksgiving. This is all about remembering what God has done. In the Feast of Tabernacles, they would give thanks for the harvest and they would give thanks for the exodus. They are looking back on their history 480 years as they dedicate this structure to God. What a beautiful picture of what it looks like to look back on God's goodness, to remember how God has provided time and time again. In verses three and four, I'm reminded further that it's not a free-for-all. Worship of God is not intended to be a free-for-all. This kind of flies in the face, by the way, of a lot of things that happen in our society. We tend to think, you know, do it my way. There's even songs about it, right? I did it my way. Well, sorry, that's not how God works. You do it God's way. And Solomon emphasized this. Look at what happens. The elders arrive, then the priests take up the ark. Why the priests? Because God had said the priests take up the ark. It was God's rule. In fact, this is uh, contrasted with the way David had handled the ark a generation earlier. David had tried to bring up the ark and he threw it on the back of a cart because that worked really well. That was convenient. And it cost somebody his life. Solomon follows God's prescribed way of worship. Notice what else happens. What does Solomon place in the ark? Solomon places the Ten Commandments in the ark. Why the Ten Commandments? Because it was God's covenant with Israel. Now, if I had been Solomon, and I'm not, nowhere near that wise, I would have made a bad decision, as you can imagine. I would have thought, you know, those stone tablets are 480 years old. I can't read what's on them. They're starting to get kind of old. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to make goldstone tablets. And I'm going to re-etch the Ten Commandments because, you know, it'll look better in gold. And I'm going to throw some jewels on that. And I'm going to make this beautiful. Here's the big shocker. With all of Solomon's wealth, that's not what he does. Why? Because no man-made glory can bring God glory. Amen. Only God can bring glory. God doesn't need our trinkets. He doesn't need our gold. Sometimes he chooses to use it, but he doesn't need it. And so Solomon does it right, God's way. Actually, there's other things that, that kind of strike me in here, other ways that I'm very impressed by things that Solomon does. Solomon funded this event. If I were Solomon and I had written the check, I probably would think in my selfishness, you know, I kind of want to carry the ark for a little bit. 
After all, I'm the one who's paying for this. But look at what Solomon does. Everybody takes their God-ordained rule. Solomon funds the project. He's the king. He funds the project. The rulers provide leadership and garner community support. The Levites provide the labor. And the priests provide for the spiritual needs of the people. Everybody takes their prescribed role in this, and it is beautiful. Solomon might have said, I paid for it, therefore I'm going to be the one who leads worship today. But that's not what God intended. Every step of the way, what they show is that God is worthy of our efforts in worship, but our efforts must be done according to God's prescribed plan. Finally, we see just the abundance of worship. Verse 5 shows us this abundance. They start sacrificing. They get the ark there, and they begin sacrificing to God. And they're sacrificing with such abundance that they lose count. That's worship. They lose count because they are giving it all to our God. What a beautiful picture of worship. So let me give you an action step, a challenge for this week. Abundant worship. Individual and corporate abundant worship. So here's the deal. The sanctuary is this close to being done. We have a couple of pews that need to be anchored. Our office here at the church, and I haven't actually told anybody on staff this, so here's something that I just thought of. I, I thought of it a little bit earlier. But our office is open from 8 to 3. If you this week want to come in and pray in the sanctuary in worship to our God, stop by the office sometime when they're open, and we'll let you in, and you can go in and pray. Because we need to be corporately, individually, abundantly worshiping our God. By the way, if I'm in when you come in, Come grab me because I'll go pray with you. I want us to be in worship to God this week, together, abundantly, giving him all that we have. By the way, a side effect of that, we've seen Satan trying to distract us the last couple of weeks, and I'd like prayer for that too, because I want us to be in prayer. Moving on, though, in the passage, verses 6 through 9 The point that I have here is that God is worthy of careful and purposeful acts of worship and remembrance. Solomon here is careful and purposeful. Careful and purposeful. There are times where I lack care and purposefulness, and it almost always gets me in trouble. Almost always. Um, the one that stood out to me as I was thinking about times when I've messed up and being careful and purposeful, it was a couple of years ago, I think since we lived in Nebraska, but we were back at my mom's house in Colorado, and uh, we were out messing around, and eventually we all got back to the house, and it, we were getting hungry, and we thought we need something to eat, so we picked up one of those like handmade pizzas, but that's not cooked yet. So we picked one of those up and we brought it home and we all got home and my mom was out doing something. So she wasn't home yet. And we looked at this pizza and my brothers and I said, you know, it doesn't have 
as much cheese as we want on it. We need more cheese on our pizza. So we went to the freezer and we pulled out a bag of what we thought was cheese. And we learned that pepperoni and hash browns just don't quite go together. (laughs) Being careful and purposeful matters. Especially when we're talking about the God of the universe. We need to make sure that we are worshiping God, that our focus is on God, that we are not substituting something inferior to God for God. Verses six through eight, we're reminded that God's presence actually does matter in worship. It needs to be God. The placement of the Ark of the Covenant is important because it represented the presence of God. God is omnipresent. He is everywhere. But by placing the Ark of the Covenant in the most holy place, they are saying, God, you are invited to our worship. We need to make sure that God is part of our worship. The cherubim covering the Ark We're there to remind the people that we are trying to give God our fullest, that we are trying to represent the God of the universe here. The poles in the ark. The poles in the ark were there to carry the ark because the idea was no human hand should ever touch the ark because our God is so magnificent that our hands are unworthy to touch it. So poles were used to carry the ark. And what do they do? They leave the poles in the ark. And I believe the reason they do this is so that the people will always see those poles sticking out the curtains and remember the ark's back there. That's God. But we're not allowed to touch because he is so holy. They are purposeful in all of the decisions that they make. The two tablets of the Ten Commandments of the covenant are placed inside the ark. Why? to remind the people that God is a promise-keeping God who brought us out of Egypt. The tablets weren't flashy. They weren't made of gold. No, they represent God's covenant. Notice the things that aren't there. Again, if it was me, I would have screwed this up. I would have said, you know, if I was Solomon... I've written some really, really good poetry. I think I'm going to put some of my poetry in the ark. And my dad wrote some awesome songs. Let me put a couple of those in the ark too. But it wasn't about Solomon. It wasn't about David. It was about God. And so the only thing in the ark is the thing that God had written. Moses had to re-chisel the Ten Commandments. That's what they chose to represent God. We need to be purposeful. We need to be careful. We need to make sure that everything we're doing is intentionally focused on bringing glory to God. Last year, Emily and I flew back to Colorado, and uh, the airplane that I fly is a small airplane. And when when I say small, I mean like really small. Uh, Full fuel, we have 275 pounds we can carry. That's counting me and counting any passengers that I have. So as we were flying back, I actually calculated exactly how much fuel we were going to need with a little bit of reserve and weighed all of that out. 
I got on the scale. I asked Emily to get on the scale, and I said, all right, Emily, you have 15 pounds of luggage you're allowed to bring. Because she wanted to bring the cat, and that's like 20 pounds right there. <laughs> you get 15 pounds of luggage. So she packed her bag, and she handed me a backpack and said, I've got it. So I took the bag, and I put it on the scale, and it weighed in at 20 pounds. And she said, close enough, right? No. Say, we're going to have to be more purposeful. Everything you do has to matter. Everything you choose has to have a purpose. It's kind of a silly example, but I do think that's how we should approach worship. Does everything we do matter? Is it have an intention? Does it have a purpose? Is it worth carrying with us? Because everything that we choose to do is something else that we can't do. Let's be purposeful in our worship to God. So, action step. This week, will you commit to being careful and purposeful as you worship and remember our God? Make sure that everything we do matters, brings glory to God. My final point We should try. We really should try because God's worthy of our effort. We should make sure everything we do is purposeful. But we must realize that God himself is the only real source of glory. As we are purposeful, as we make our efforts to bring God glory, we have to realize that God is the only real source of glory. Solomon, the priests, the leaders, they all played a role They covered construction costs. They rallied the people together. They made sacrifices. But in verses 10 through 11, God takes over. And I want you to notice what happens when God takes over. Let's read again verses 10 and 11. It says, When the priests withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord, and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled his temple. Once God took over, no human level of worship could even take place because God's glory overwhelmed the temple. We need to realize that our best is worth giving to God, but our best is nothing in comparison with who God really is. When God's glory showed up, they recognized, wow, we have nothing. And that brought God, I believe, even more glory. But that doesn't mean we stop trying. Verses 12 and 13 are a reminder that people should still try to bring glory to God. Solomon responded to seeing God's glory. Solomon responded with this statement. The Lord said that he would dwell in a dark cloud. I've indeed built a magnificent temple for you, a place for you to dwell forever. God, you said your glory is amazing, and now I'm seeing it, and we're going to jump ahead to verses 27 through 30 because we just don't have the time to cover everything in between. But look at how Solomon responds to God's glory in verses 27 and 30. But will God really dwell on earth? 
The heavens, even the highest heavens, cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. Yet give attention to your servant's prayer and his plea for mercy. Lord, my God, hear the cry and the prayer that your servant is praying in your presence this day. May your eyes be open toward this temple night and day, this place of which you said, my name shall be there, so that you will hear the prayer of your servants pray towards this place. Hear the supplication of your servant and your people Israel when they pray toward this place. Hear from heaven your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. Solomon, I think, is blown away by God's glory. And he enters into this praise of God. And he concludes his praise with God with just complete, utter amazement. The highest heaven can't contain you, God. And yet, you're showing your glory here. God cannot and will not be limited to human construction because the whole universe is his throne. But yet, God chose to bring his glory to that temple in that day. We must recognize that our efforts to worship God are actually insufficient. It doesn't mean we don't try. It doesn't mean we don't give our best. In fact, giving our best helps to show just how insignificant our efforts are, and I believe that they bring God glory. There is something that we can learn from what Solomon says, though. Human efforts should always have one focus, to point to the God of the universe. There's four principles here in this passage that Solomon highlights. First, Solomon highlights this principle, that God desires a relationship with people. How do I see that? Look at how Solomon identifies himself in verse 28. Your servant. God wants a relationship with you. God wants relationship with you. He desires relationship with you. He sent Jesus on the cross to die, to pay for your sins so that you can have a relationship with God. Solomon's declaration His identification as your servant is a reminder that we have. The second thing Solomon highlights is God is omnipotent, all-powerful, and hears prayer anywhere to your servant's prayer. God hears our prayers. I want you to hear that again. God, the ruler of the universe, Karen and I were talking in the office today because she found a guide. We were cleaning up stuff, and she found a guide on how to be an office manager for a church. And inside this guide were instructions for how to write a letter or a response to a letter on behalf of the pastor. So the idea was if you send your pastor a letter and he doesn't feel like this, I don't do this, okay? If you send your pastor a letter and he doesn't feel like answering it or dealing with it, he hands it to the office manager and says, can you take care of this? And the office manager writes a letter, signs it as the pastor, and mails it back. I don't do that. (laughs) But if you write a letter to the president, you're not getting the president's response. Just an FYI. Right? There are people that write, write those responses for the president. I want you to catch the significance that God hears our prayers. God, the God of the universe, hears our prayers. 
personally. God's promised to put his name. He promised to put his name in the temple. He has now put his seal on our hearts with the Holy Spirit indwelling us. God has identified us as his people. He promises his name is present. Solomon notes, God, you are placing your name on this temple. This is yours. And I want you to note that we are now the temple of God and he has placed his name on us. And then finally, Solomon recognizes that God is a forgiving God. We will make mistakes. We do make mistakes, but God is a forgiving God. Real worship of God places God at the center. It doesn't bind him by human limitations, but rather seeks to worship God for who he is. A relational, faithful, loving, forgiving God. This week, take some time to participate in both individual and corporate worship that is both careful to focus on God and is purposeful. Take time this week to participate in worship, both individually and corporately, that's both careful to focus on God and is purposeful. If that means at lunch, you want to stop by the church and pray in the sanctuary, we'd love to have you. If that means at lunch you decide, I can't make it down to the church, but I'm going to call the church and see if they'll pray with me on the phone and worship to God. Again, we'd love to. If you want to call me on my cell phone in the evening and say, can we just pray for a little bit and worship to God? I'd love to. But let's take time this week to really deeply prepare ourselves for dedication by worshiping our God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for who you are. A faithful, relational, loving, forgiving, all-powerful God. I pray that as we prepare our hearts this week, we have a major event, the dedication of our sanctuary scheduled for next week. But God, if, if you're not part of it, it's not worth doing. Now, I believe you are part of it. I believe you have actually ordained every aspect of this and I see your fingerprints throughout it. And so I pray that this week we would proclaim ourselves your servants as we humbly come before you and ask that you bring glory to that which we are offering you. We know that there can be no glory without you. And so we humbly ask that you would bring glory to it. In Jesus' name, amen.